Olivia Hayfield had a crazy idea in the shower and then she turned it into a blockbuster book. And then she wrote a sequel. Why not, she said, retell the story of Henry VIII as a 20th century media mogul? The end result was Wife After Wife, the tale of Harry Rose, a Richard Branson-style magnate who's a lot more likeable than Henry VIII, but does manage to notch up multiple wives. One reviewer described it as rich people behaving badly, and now there's the sequel. Welcome to the joys of binge reading, the show for anyone who ever got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next instalment. We interview successful series authors and recommend the best in mystery, suspense, historical and romance series. So you'll never be without a book you can't put down. You'll find this episode's show notes, a free ebook, and lots more information at thejoysofbingereading.com. And now, here's our show. Hi there, I'm your host Jenny Wheeler and in today's binge reading episode, Olivia tells us about the latest in the series, Sister to Sister, the story of Harry's two daughters, paralleling the Virgin Queen Elizabeth I and her sister Mary Tudor, rivals for the English throne, like the modern day sisters are rivals to run the media company. You'll find a full transcript of our chat and links to Olivia's books and news media on thejoysofbingereading.com. That's where you'll find all of the stuff you need. Visit us there, leave your comments and suggestions. We love to hear from our listeners. But now, here's Olivia. Hello there, Olivia, and welcome to the show. It's great to have you with us. Oh, good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here, tossing books. This is a real novelty, actually, because you're in Auckland in the same city as me. That happens very rarely in these podcasts. And we're both back in a very short lockdown. Hopefully it's yes. going to be um, rescinded before the end of the week. But So we're stuck at home and a Zoom, in, uh, a Zoom chat is just yes. great. I was supposed to have my book launched tomorrow and, of course, that's just the most appalling timing, so I'm really a bit sad about that, but hopefully it'll just be postponed, not cancelled. Oh, absolutely, and all the arrangements and all the kind of booking of premises and things, how annoying. I know it is, but, you know, these things can't be helped. There's a lot of people worse off. I keep telling myself that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, you've done two very popular and clever women's fiction books, and you could put them in the category of rich people people behaving badly, which is one one little tagline a reviewer gave one of them. But you describe them as modern retellings of historical tales, and it was a very high-concept idea. Take Henry VIII as if he was a 21st century womanising media mogul rather than the King of England. Now, I just wonder, how did that idea form in your mind? Well, I think like all the best ideas, it just came out of nowhere. You know, I tend to, if I sit down at my computer and think hard, it doesn't happen. It tends to be when I'm in the shower or when I'm out for a walk. So with with the Henry idea, it was back in 2018 and I was just thinking about Trump <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, you know, he's turning into a bit of a tyrant. I think we just had the whole grabbing women by the pussy episode. I was thinking, how is this man still in power? And then I just had this progression of thought, you know, the gingery hair, the sort of temporary tantrumy 
things going on. And I thought, oh, he's really just like a modern day Henry VIII. And I've always been fascinated by Henry VIII. And then the idea came to me, well, you know, what would Henry VIII be like if he lived today? Would he be like Trump or would he be a bit different? And I thought, well, somebody's got to have done this. So as soon as I got out of the shower, I Googled modern day retelling Henry VIII and no one had. And I thought, I've just, I've just got to give this a go. It would be such, such fun to do. And I started thinking what Henry would be like now and then what his wives would be like now. And the characters were all so strong and it was very, very easy to picture what they'd be like if they lived now. Although, of course, once I started researching Henry, he turned out to be nothing like Trump at all. It was just really on the surface that he had the kind of Trumpishness going on. And early on in his monarchy, I suppose you call it, he was actually, you know, a pretty amazing guy. And um, so my big question was what turned him from that golden prince into this awful, obese tyrant that he was by the end of his reign. And those influences that turned him from this nice guy to this awful guy, would they still be here today? Or would they be tempered? Would the women have more of an influence on him? And so my Henry, my Harry Rose figure turned out to be a much softer, more likable, a more empathetic version of, of Henry VIII, if you like. Yes, yeah. yes. I'm quite fascinated in the differences between Henry VIII and Trump. Could you just very quickly sort of outline why they oh, became so different when you looked into it? Yes, without being too rude. You mean. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have any being American... <laughs> <laughs> Well, um, Henry VIII was a very deep thinker. He never expected to be king. His older brother, Arthur, was always going to be king and Henry was destined for the church. So he he had an upbringing which was he learned a lot of theology. He surrounded himself with great minds. He was very intelligent. He was very charismatic and he had this common touch where, you know, he got on with everyone. He was very likable. He wrote poetry. He wrote music. He was very very sporty. He was enormously tall for the time. He was six foot two or six foot three and people just weren't over six foot in those days so he was this larger than life charismatic jolly figure very very likable I think whereas Trump I think you know <laughs> doesn't have that depth of character I think he's no the depth thing definitely lacking I think we can begin and end there can't we really yeah yeah look the first book was appropriately called wife after wife and it does trace Harry's multiple marriages because he has to have them if he's going to be an erstwhile Henry VIII. And while he doesn't personally kill anyone, a couple of his wives meet unfortunate ends that he is partially at least implicated in. Was it fun working out just how to do that, to kind of parallel them but but make it believable in our day? I mean, obviously he can't execute them. Yeah, that was my main challenge was how to make Harry responsible for these two deaths of these lovely women. But I didn't want him to be a murderer. And my biggest challenge throughout writing the whole book was to keep the reader on side with the Harry Rose figure because the women were so strong and I wanted them to be very modern, independent, strong women. And I thought, well, if Harry is, is 
an awful person, they won't stick with him. You know, he he needs to have something to make them love him, to make them want to stick with him. So I, I didn't want him to be a murderer. I didn't want him to be a bad person, but he needed to be responsible. So it's more of a kind of washing of his hands of them, turning his back on them and moving on to the next woman rather than any, you know, murderous intent if you like so that, yes. that was my biggest challenge I think yes. with books yeah the, the new one the latest one that should have been launched tomorrow is called Sister to Sister and it's the next stage in the family drama it's Harry's two daughters in competition to run the empire in much the same way that Queen Elizabeth I and Mary Tudor were rivals for the English throne I just, we, if we just backtrack for a moment, when did you really become fascinated with the Tudors? It obviously isn't just Henry VIII because you got really into some of the other peripheral yeah. characters too, like Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare. Yeah. We'll yeah. go into those a little bit soon. But how did you fall in love with the Tudors? Well, I grew up in a very historic part of, of England, in Warwickshire, and my parents were always very interested in history. So they were always dragging us around castles and stately homes. And I just loved the feel of those places. And I could have sort of loved to imagine medieval princesses wafting around and knights in shining armour. And it, so I kind of grew up with it. But I think the Tudors, when that really took off, was when I went with my school to see um, a movie called Anne of the Thousand Days, which I think I'd looked it up last night. It came out in 1970. So I must have been about 10 10 or, or 11 at the time. And I was aware of Henry VIII. I mean, you can't not be growing up in England. He's everywhere, you know, gift shops and what have you. But I didn't really know the story. And I was so outraged by the way this man had treated this woman who he'd fallen deeply in love with and then just cast aside and had beheaded. And Richard Burton played Henry VIII. And you can imagine he was just absolutely compelling in that role. So after that, I, I started to read historical fiction on Henry and his wives, and then that kind of expanded out. And I read everything in the library off the historical fiction shelves. And a bit later on, I started to read sort of the more academic works as well around them so that I could differentiate between what was fiction and what was the truth. But I always think with the Tudors, the truth is actually stranger than any fiction you could write. <laughs> and I think this is why it's such an amazing dynasty. I mean, it is like a soap opera, but it, yeah. it really happened. It's just the most incredible period of history. Yes. Yeah. The Tudors don't encroach terribly much on the storyline. I mean, you, you're aware of them in the background and you give a very full explanation about which characters relate to which historic character. I just wonder, do you think that most readers really even, you know, take up the Tudor aspect or do they really almost read it more as a contemporary soap opera? Oh, that's a really good question because it it works on two levels and I always intended for that because... As soon as the the Americans picked up the rights to the book that got sold into Penguin, I thought, well, a lot of Americans aren't going to have a clue about any of this stuff. Even if they've seen the Tudors TV series, they're not going to get all these references. So when we did a sort of another edit, I, I was very aware of that it needed to work, even if you didn't have a clue about what was what the real stories behind this was. So there are all sorts of little what they call Easter eggs in there, which will go way over 
a lot of readers' heads, you know, things like there's a bowl of pomegranates on Katie's table, and that was Catherine of Aragon's symbol. And Henry loved playing tennis. And in the new one, I've got an ice cream van playing green sleeves. You know, this will mean nothing to a lot of people. But the pe- there are a lot of people out there who are massive Tudor fans, and they love this stuff. And they pick up on that. And I've had a couple of historians who write blogs who have, picked up the books and, and run with them and really love sort of looking out for all those little references and how I've treated that. So, yes, it's a very much a two-level thing. And the thing that I like best of all is when a reader might know pretty much nothing, but then they go away and find out. So I'm kind of – there's a bit of education going on in there as well because I'm very into educating people about history and you know, learning from past mistakes and history always repeating itself. So I love it when that happens. I'm just wondering, you know, if there ever happens to come a TV version of this, whether it would be tempting for the director to actually include some footage of the Tudors, you kind of do a little bit of a time warp thing, because it would kind of make it very fascinating to to have that there. I think in the book, I thought about how could you do it in the book, and I thought, no, it probably just would be too hard. But maybe in a film version, it might be easier to to flag the, the parallel lines. You do, and uh, you can, there's always those interesting things where they do, you know, the real the real story behind. Like, so when I, in for my books, I've put blog posts on Olivia's website, you know, little biographies of the real people and portraits showing how they evolved through their reigns. So I've done all the wives, I've done Henry, and I've just done Elizabeth and Mary, and I'm going to do Robert Dudley, and then... The next book, I'm going to do all the the Plantagenets. So hopefully, you know, when people read them, if they want to find out more, they can go onto my website and read these little mini biographies of the people and learn about what really happened. So the same thing happening for a TV or film would be fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I think I was thinking a bit about Bridgerton and the way that Netflix handled (laughs) Bridgerton because I went back and looked at the Julia Quinn books, which were published in 2000, and they didn't have that whole overlay of a black queen and they didn't have the, the sort of implication of quite a lot of gay sex, et cetera. And I realised that, you know, 20 years ago, that wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have been able to include that slightly surreal stuff in a straight romance novel, but they had to kind of spice it up a bit. And I thought there might be a similar thing happening with, if you get if you get this book made in 10 years' time on Netflix, they could well put that kind of overlay over it. It just was a thought I had. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a, there's a new series on Anne Boleyn coming out with a black Anne Boleyn. Um, oh, really? Uh, yes. Oh, that's right. And I've seen controversy yeah. about that fact that she is a black Anne Boleyn. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's divided people. And it's just so interesting watching all the discussions about how close you should be to history or is it more about the spirit of the person. It's fascinating. And the difference I feel between my second book, Sister to Sister, and the first book is the first book is set sort of 1985 up until sort of 2018. Second one is very much now. And so there is a lot, there's a lot more looking at the kind of gay and pansexual relationships. And I had to talk to my daughter, who's, well, she was 19 when I was writing it, she's 20 now, about all all that side of things, because I wanted it, I wanted to get it right. And it is so different now. And I think we have to build that into our stories. Yeah, yeah. So going back to the parallels, Mary Tudor vigorously tried to return England to Catholicism after her father's Protestant revolution. And 
Maria in the story tries to impose fundamentalist Christian values on what was a fairly liberal-minded family empire. There are uncanny similarities there again, aren't there? Yeah, so I thought about how the, the conflict between Elizabeth and Mary and Mary Tudor was, I have I have a lot of sympathy for her. I've been reading a lot more about her even since I wrote the book and she she was a really unhappy person. She had a such a sad life. It was just awful. But she was fanatical when it came to burning heretics. She honestly believed that these poor people had no chance of going to heaven unless they were burned at the stake. And um, by the time she'd finished, she'd burnt knocking on 300 people and the the English people had, had just had enough. You know, they they were sick of it and they were desperate to have what they were calling their Elizabeth, who they knew was going to be much more moderate on the throne. So that was quite... I, I thought about how those sort of attitudes, how could I bring them into the modern day? I And I thought really the most fundamental people in the West, in the Christian religion, are those kind of evangelicals. But I didn't want to offend anyone. So Phil Seville, my evangelical empire ruler, he's actually a bit of a fraud. So I think I've made that quite clear that uh, he's he's like those American evangelists who just make billions and billions and, and yes. kind of feel that they don't actually believe a lot of what they're preaching Yes. Um, but Maria, of course, does. So that's the tragedy is that she falls in love with this man who's actually a fraud. Um, yes. She, of course, has a different outcome from <laughs> the historical one, but I won't give that away. No, that's right. That's right. Look, there's a lot of love and falling in love, but there aren't very many happy ever afters for your characters in this book. It's not a traditional ending romance. And I wondered if Eliza, for example, decides that she's not going to be able to marry. During the course of the book, she she sort of comes to the conclusion that work has to come first. If she's going to run a media empire, her work is going to be first and she can't really spare the time for family life. I wondered if that was a satisfying conclusion for your readers or whether you have got some third instalment where... She can have it all. <laughs> oh, this this is the million dollar question, really. Yes, I have. Uh, she's only sort of twenty five ish by yeah. the book, so I think there's plenty of time for her to develop more and think about things more. But I actually rewrote the ending a couple of times. I had very strong views on how I wanted. I, I don't want to give anything away here, but I had a very clear picture of the happy ending I wanted her to have and my editor in London didn't agree with me at all so we had very long discussions about how closely Eliza should parallel Elizabeth I I mean there were very obvious reasons why Elizabeth I didn't get married she would have had to have given up all her power because women you know were subservient in those days well the same wouldn't apply to my Eliza she could get married and still be the boss and still do all this stuff so so we had all sorts of discussions and we kind of compromised a bit it has been left open and as I say she's very young so yeah it wasn't quite the ending I was aiming for but 
I decided it worked and I would you know I wouldn't have, have written it that way if I I think it does work but it does leave that slightly woeful woeful idea it that really does 500 years later you still can't really have love and career that's kind of the final blatant sort of um conclusion you have to come to and I don't think you probably really wanted to convey that idea as as a final yeah, no. permanent solution. No, I think it was more that when I when I talked to my editor about it, we were saying, you know, there are a lot of women these days who decide not to have children. Yeah. Uh, you know, that shouldn't be seen as a sad thing necessarily. If they've made that decision, they've made it for very good reasons. So we were kind of, we had those women in mind. Trying to run a media empire and bring up a family would would be pretty exhausting. And, you know, at this point in her life, she she makes a decision that, that she thinks is best for her at that point in her life. And I think a lot of 25-year-old women would relate to that. And the, the character, Rob, he is very ambitious. I looked very closely at who he was based on, the Earl of Leicester, Robert Dudley, and I wasn't hugely taken with him I've actually made him a lot more sympathetic than I think he really was I think he was very very ambitious I think he did love Elizabeth I but I think he was a lot about power he came from a very very powerful family very very ambitious father so you know I was very suspicious of his motivations. So I I brought a bit of that across in my version, although, as I say, he's a bit more sympathetic than than I think the original was. But my Eliza character is, I think she's aware deep down that he's not all just about, you know, love. There's a bit more going on here. And he probably isn't ideal husband material in the end. You know, I mean, you do sense that too. Do you think there ever will be a third book? In this series? Um, in this series, I'm not sure. I, I just, I took a step backwards for my third one because I really wanted to do something with Richard III um, and the Princes in the Tower story because I'd become very fascinated by all that and the Plantagenets, your ancestors. <laughs> um, so I, I did that. I've now got to think about what I might do for a number four. So one idea I've been exploring is perhaps moving forward with the Tudors again. There are a few interesting characters I could tell the next instalment from their point of view. I'm not sure about whether I would take Eliza on from her point of view or not. So it's all it's all quite up in the air at the, at the moment, yeah. That storyline we've been discussing, the kind of women's place, you know, it would be interesting to have Eliza at 40, say, because she's still got plenty of time. I mean, I'm thinking of the sort of marriage. I'm just trying to remember her name, but the very famous English novelist who she and her husband lived in separate houses, Margaret somebody, I forget what her surname was, but they lived in separate houses. They had a very happy, as far as we know, marriage for 20-odd years or so, maybe longer. I don't remember all the details, but they maintained quite sort of interestingly independent lives, but had a very happy union as well. And I do think this possibility is there without even having children that many women could relate to, yeah. Yes, I think you can see that it probably got me a bit, that. <laughs> <laughs> I can 
see you on Eliza to have a happy ending. But that's good because <laughs> it means that you're interested in her and you like her. <laughs> Absolutely. You, you got me helped in. Look, turning away from the specific books now to talk about your wider career, could you tell us something about your working life around being an author? You do have another identity and how has that fed into your writing? Oh, well, I just have I have those I sort of split three ways, really, because I have my my day job, which is editing books. And then I have the Sue Copsey, which is the children's author. Um, I've written children's books for years and years. And then I have this this new beast, Olivia Hayfield, um, <laughs> who writes adult fiction. So I've been an editor for years and years, and I've always done a bit of writing as part of that. And then when I came to New Zealand, I was working a lot in educational publishing, but still as a freelancer. So I was able to sort of do a bit of writing in my spare time. Uh, I didn't really have a go at fiction until sort of around 2010, 2011, something like that. I'd done non-fiction. But then publishing in New Zealand contracted massively. A lot of publishers closed down, some went offshore. And the one that I was doing most of my work for, which was Pearson, they shut down without warning. And so I started to work a lot more directly with authors who were self-publishing and getting their books ready for submission. And that's when I started to really get into fiction and to learn what made a good story or about things like pace and character and story arcs and all those things. And I, I reckon it probably took me about five years before I felt that I knew enough about how fiction worked to really have a crack at it properly myself. So I started off, I wrote three children's novels. So they're all ghost stories set in New Zealand. And then I wrote another one, which is coming out later this year. Uh, that was out on submission and with an agent for quite some time and I was so invested in it I didn't want to write another children's story until I knew what was happening with this little book so which is why I thought well why don't I try something different so I wrote the Henry VIII story and talk about you know just it just all took off and I couldn't quite believe what was happening so Olivia me has definitely um taken over from sue me <laughs> <laughs> last year or two which is quite nice because she's a lot more fun than Sue <laughs> she gets away with more bad behavior <laughs> look that's lovely so is there one thing you've done in your writing career more than any other that you think has been the key to your success as a fiction writer I was thinking about that when you sent that question through but there's an awful lot of luck involved definitely I've had a lot of lucky breaks but I think the key is just being a bit obsessive and really being passionate about what you do. When, when I, I've got a lot of author friends and when I look at the ones that, who are successful, it's the obsessives, you know. It's the ones that would rather be writing than doing anything else, not the ones who are going, oh, God, I've got to do this book and I've got this deadline. It's the ones who are going, oh, you know, I can't wait to get stuck into it. And they're a little bit mad, I think, <laughs> and we kind of lose track of, what's reality and what's what's we've always got the plots in our head and it's kind of a, a way of being I think you always have to also have to be incredibly thick-skinned because the the whole rejection part is very very hard it's quite hard to keep getting yourself up off the floor and dusting yourself down and getting on with it but 
So there's a lot of determination. There's a lot of luck. I've been lucky. And I've got a very, very supportive group of author friends, children's authors and adult authors as well now. And I think they've helped enormously. And mm. the, the community in New, here in New Zealand, it's really, really supportive. And I think I might have even given up, you know, if, if I hadn't had these friends to talk to and vent to and bounce work off. So all sorts of different things have contributed to my success. I also think it, it's very important to define what you mean by success because if you're talking about money, then, you know, I have international publishing deals and people assume I'm now rich. It's hopeless. You, you cannot make a living as a writer, even if you're published here, there and everywhere, even if you get your books optioned, you're still not going to make enough money to live off you know you have to have mm. a, a day job or a very supportive mm. partner or, or some other means of income so mm. to me su success is just holding that book in my hands and sharing it with people and having a book launch party and, and good times and hanging out with other authors that's success for me not you know getting that royalty check after six months and then sitting down crying over it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Look, in your other role as book editor, you have obviously been seeing a lot of the trends in publishing over the last few years. And they that there's been a dislocation in the publishing industry, just like there was in newspapers and magazines in the 80s. But apart from that, of course, we then had the jolly old pandemic last year. Yes. Right now, how do you see publishing health? I mean, what do you observe changing? With the pandemic, it's, it's difficult to really tell. I can only really speak from personal experience and, and what I read on people's blogs and so on. For me, it's been hugely disruptive because my editor in London has been, I mean, their offices, as far as I know, have been shut since March. That's the yeah. massive Hachette building on yeah. the South Bank. It's got yeah. 25 different publishers in there and it's shut, you know. Everybody's working from home. My own publishers, they've, they've put people on furlough, so you, you'll get three weeks of them and then they'll disappear off for three weeks so pretty awful for them and for the people that they're working with all the you know the book fairs were all cancelled and that's where they sell the foreign rights so they've had they've had that disruption going on as well my book my first one wife after wife you know they were calling it a summer blockbuster then it went down to a garden read and then you know it, it it sort of dribbled out and friends were saying, well, where can I get this book? Friends back home. And I was saying, well, I don't know. And they were being told by the bookshops, we're not stocking anything that's come out during COVID. Then we had this ridiculous situation where I think about 600 books appeared in one day uh, in September. So there was this massive, you know, uh, people were trying to get shelf space. People couldn't get reviewed because so many books came out at once. So, incredibly disruptive so we've just sort of had to feel our way through I think yes. yeah yeah look turning to Olivia as reader because this is the joys of binge reading you I'm sure you are a big reader but what do you like to binge read and what would you like to recommend to others as nice entertaining uplifting fiction for this 
sort of period where away from New Zealand anyway people are still in fairly grim circumstances yeah there was one there's one book in particular I was a bit hesitant about recommending I'll come to that in a minute so personally I tend to read lots and lots of historical fiction obviously I'm a massive fan of Philippa Gregory as long as you know what's made up and and what's not made up the Hilary Mantel trilogy if if you are interested in that period of history is absolutely fantastic the Thomas Cromwell books Uh, I like women's fiction people like uh, Jojo Moyes Marion Keyes they're always good for a, a light read to lose yourself in and then here in New Zealand I've recently read Eileen Merriman's book The Silence of Snow which I really enjoyed that's a that's a terrific read Catherine Robertson's books here I really enjoy she's got one, another one coming out soon and then this one that I was going to mention so my publisher here in New Zealand Hachette sent me a book called The Last One at the Party and it's by Bethany Clift and It's just come out and it's doing really well. It's about the last person left in Britain after a pandemic. (laughs) And at first I thought, I don't think I want to read this. But it's it's so clever because it strikes this balance between terrifying horror and being absolutely hilarious. So... I won't give the plot away, but there are, there are little things in it which are just so funny. Like she's she's driving around this town trying to sort of find out if there's anyone else anywhere or and to get some food. And she still can't bring herself not to indicate when she needs to turn out of a junction. <laughs> and there's just all these little things, these little touches like that. And it's very, very funny. And if you just try not to think too hard about what's going on. And in of course, in her book, COVID-19 is just a warm-up for the real thing and the real thing is called the the real the virus is called 6dm which stands for six days max which is what you've got left if you catch this virus (laughs) and it's i think it's just come out here in new zealand and yeah so treat with caution but it's a it's a terrific read very good it strikes me as amazing excuse me for saying so but that a traditional publisher could get a book out that quickly <laughs> yes yes it's quite an achievement I think I'm not sure if it's out in the UK yet yes yeah, she only launched it last week I think in the UK she must have written it fairly fast too she probably did yeah mm. and mm. she's on Twitter and she's very funny as well ah, great <laughs> Look, at this stage in your career if you were doing it all over again would you follow exactly the same pathways um Yes, I think I would. I, I, looking back, as I say, I've had a, an awful lot of luck. I've um, always, I've, I've been working in the book world, in publishing for a long, long time now, and I'm always aware of how lucky I am because you know I love books. I've always loved books. I've always loved writing, and here I am, you know, reading and writing, and that's that's my life. I might have started writing and submitting a little bit earlier. But to be honest, you know, when I had, I was working full time and bringing up two children, I just couldn't find the time to write. And I honestly don't know how people do when they've got small children, how they find time to write. I started writing my first children's novel. My children were probably about 12 and eight, something like that. And only then did I feel that I had the space and and the time to sit down and write. So no, I, I don't think I would do anything particularly different no you mentioned that children's novel the last one did you did it have the the ending that you wanted in terms of finding the agent or getting somebody interested in it no what what happened in the end was was still out 
it had been sitting on publishers' desks for a while. And my daughter, that I mentioned before, she's 20 now, she's really, really good at art. And I've been keeping an eye on her and thinking it would be really nice to have some illustrations in this book. And I have self-published books before. So I was kind of watching her thinking, is she ready yet? And finally, I thought she'd suddenly developed this wonderful style in the last year or two. And I said, how do you fancy illustrating this book for me? Just It's a novel. So just like half a dozen illustrations or so. And so she's been doing those. And so I'm going to self-publish it with with these illustrations. And I've got the distributor all lined up and um, I'm doing the storylines tour of the South Island later in the year. And this book is set in Fjordland and it's got a very strong conservation theme and there's lots of stuff about New Zealand birds in there. So I'm kind of going to use that as an excuse to talk about the importance of conservation and habitat and all this kind of thing. And I'm going to give all the proceeds to the Kakapo recovery team. So it's not a money-making thing at all. It's just like a a pet project, if you like. And I'm really, really enjoying it. And it's such a pleasure to actually work with my daughter on it as well. So it's just a fun thing, that's all. Yeah. What age group is it aimed at? Um, It would be sort of 7 to 11, junior. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds great. Sounds lovely. It's just fun. We are starting to run out of time. So let's just see what's next for Olivia as the writer. What have you got on in terms of on your desk for the next 12 months, new projects under development? Yes, so I finished writing the Richard III novel. I've, I cracked that one out in no time because once I start writing, I'm I'm like a demon. <laughs> I wrote a lot of it in, in uh, the second lockdown we had last year in sort of September around that time. And I wasn't sure because I had a two-book deal for the other two. I wasn't sure whether the publishers would go for it because Richard III isn't such a glamorous figure you know he's not so well known but I'm delighted to say that we got an an offer for it so that's just being hammered out at the moment so the next stage my editor in London who is brilliant but she's tough and she tends to like a lot of rewriting (laughs) until she's happy so I foresee a lot of that going on in the next few months and then at the same time I'll be thinking about who to tackle next you know whether I continue with the Tudors or do something completely different. I've been reading up around um, some other figures like King Arthur and Robin Hood, people that I might be able to tell their stories in the modern day. There are some amazing women in history, but they're less well known. So it's it's finding people that, that are known and telling their stories and you know, finding those characters that really leap out of the history books and just like yes, yes. Yeah. I interviewed a writer a couple of weeks ago who's going to be, in, in America, as you probably are aware, March is Women's History Month, which should be quite good for you as well. But Alison Pataki has made, made a specialty of finding these undervalued women in history and writing books about them. And the most recent one she did was about Napoleon's first love, who oh. he... He nearly married her and then met Jess Josephine and she was just history sort of thing. But she ended up having a very interesting life. So she's made a a sort of little bit of a thing about digging out those women and giving them a whole sort of new life, which is an interesting approach as well. Yes, you have to look quite hard to find them because, of course, history books are mostly written by men. So uh, the women were always such of these background figures just sort of sitting at home sewing shirts and, and what have you. But, yeah, there are some remarkable figures. I mean, Ele- 
Enola Aquitaine is another one. She was yeah. amazing. Catherine yeah. Swin- Swinford, she's a, and Margaret Beaufort, she's in my my latest one. She was an incredible woman. You know, they're there if you look. Yeah. Yes, yes. Just flicking back to Richard III for a moment, I mean, probably most people do know him as unfortunately associated with the death of the princes in the tower. Without giving anything away, did you find some interesting things out about him to make him more likeable? Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Richard, as you never imagined him before. Yes. <laughs> when I was thinking about who to do next, I had lunch in London with a friend who told me about this book that I absolutely had to read called The Daughter of Time by Josephine Tay. It's about a detective in the 1950s who's bedridden and he's looking at this portrait of Richard III and he thinks to himself, that doesn't look like the face of an evil child murderer to me. So as a detective, he sets out to to explore this whole mystery of the princes in the town. He comes to quite a different conclusion. And of course, the Tudors, Henry VII and Henry VIII, saw the Plantagenets as, as enormous threats. They were still there in the background and they were both always fearing rebellion. So they kind of set out to trash the whole Plantagenet legacy and Richard III got most of that. So there are things like his the most famous portrait of Richard, they actually added in a, a hump to make him look more deformed and they put in frown lines on his face to make him look more evil. They completely trashed his memory. And if you actually look into Richard, he was a very interesting character and he was much loved in the North, which he ruled during his brother's reign. And the evidence around what happened to the princes in the tower it's all a bit shaky there are other people who might have been involved what did he actually have to gain by Mm. their deaths all sorts of questions and there's Mm. a whole there's a whole cohort of people out there called Ricardians who they you know they're devoted to um, rehabilitating his memory so I joined Facebook groups called things like Richard III was innocent and watched all these conversations to hear what they had to say and then drew my own conclusions and yeah wrote the story. Marvellous has that one got a title yet? Ah that's interesting you should say because I called it Hunch because it's a whodunit and it's about Richard III. And I thought this was quite clever, but uh, the publishers don't like it. I think they don't want me drawing attention to the deformity made. Yes. So yeah. at the moment it's called Olivia Hayfield, book three untitled. Um, <laughs> I did think about the nursery rhyme, There Was a Crooked Man, because I thought that had a bit of an Agatha Christie vibe to it. And Richard was known as Crookback. So I threw that one into the mix and I'm kind of waiting to hear back or possibly the Lost Boys. We'll see. We'll see what they're like. Yes, wonderful. Look, do you enjoy hearing from your readers and where can they find you online or where can they find you generally? Um, Always at home. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, I have a website and there's a contact form on there or um, Sue Copsey has a website and there's an email address on there. I really, really love hearing from readers and I think all authors do. You know, we're sort of shut in our caves, solitary little figures, and if a little email pops in and saying, I just want to tell you how much I loved your book, that is so marvellous, so uplifting. So I would say to readers, you know, never think that you're stalking or being weird. We just absolutely love 
to connect with readers at what you know we can't connect with them at festivals at the moment because they're not happening so online is is absolutely great yes look that's wonderful and we will put links to all of those um, places in the show notes for this episode so you can find them all online forevermore so we'll, we'll make sure those go in thank you Thanks, Olivia, so much for your time. It's been fantastic talking. And I'm sure when the Richard III book comes out, we'll do a revisit. Oh, thank you. It's been really nice talking to someone who who gets the books. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Joys of Binge Reading podcast. You can find all the details and links for this episode at www.thejoysofbingereading.com. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions for who you'd like us to interview next. And if you enjoyed the show, take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or a similar provider so you won't miss out on future guests. Thanks for joining us and happy reading. The Joys of Binge Reading podcast is put together with fantastic technical help from Dan Cotton and Abe Raffles. Dan is an experienced sound and video engineer who's ready and available to help you with your next project. Seek him out at dcaudioservices at gmail.com That's D for Daniel, C for Charlie, services at gmail.com or check our show notes. He's fast, he takes pride in getting it right and he's great to work with. Our voiceovers are done by Abe Raffles, another gem of sound and screen. Abe has 20 years of experience on both sides of the camera slash microphone, as a cameraman director and also as a voice artist and TV presenter. I think you'd agree that his voice is both light-hearted and warm. He is super easy to work with no matter what the job. You'll find him at abe, A-B-E, at pointandshoot.co.nz. As I say, the full details in the show notes on the website. That's it for now. Thanks for listening. Hopefully see you next week. Bye.